Well, this is interesting. Uh, you know, James just gave this announcement about New Hope Church, a church that we support in the Ukraine. And uh, he even made this little comment, which is an important comment, that, that we're making you aware of an opportunity to support a church in the Ukraine. And we're not asking you to give what you would normally give to New Hope Fellowship. We're asking you to continue to give to New Hope Fellowship. And if you feel like this opportunity is something that you would like to help out with, then give above and beyond what you would normally give so that we can help this church in the Ukraine too. Because we believe in the local church. We believe that God's plan A for the pursuit of His mission to bring glory to Jesus Christ on the earth takes place through local churches. And so we believe in them. But boy, this is a tough season to be asking for money. Actually, this is like a preacher's nightmare is to have to talk about money, especially at Christmas time. And I don't have to talk about it, but I chose to talk about it because I know that uh, this is a season of giving. There's a lot of opportunities to give and there's a lot of pressure to give at times. And I don't want giving to be a burden. I don't want giving to New Hope Fellowship. I don't want giving to New Hope Church. I don't want giving to others in the Christmas season to be a burden. Now I know it's going to hurt a little bit. And when I say I don't want it to be a burden, I don't mean I don't want it to hurt. Because that's just how it works sometimes. But I don't want it to be a burden. I'm not going to talk about giving to the local church today. I'm not going to be talking about why you should be giving to New Hope Fellowship if this is your local church body. I will talk about that in the spring, but I'm not going to talk about it today. I'm not going to talk about why uh, we're taking a love offering for New Hope uh, Church in addition to our offering here. I'm going to talk about being a generous person in general. And I'm going to mainly talk about money, but I'm going to talk about the implications of this message for being a generous person with your time, your talents, your life. And there's two reasons why I think this is important. And the first is because it's a good follow-up from last week, which I'll come back to in a minute. But the second reason that I want to talk about it today, and it's related to the first, is because I think there's some talk out there right now, if you read the blogs like I do, there's some talk out there right now that is using what I think are guilt tactics to try and move, motivate Christians to get more active, to give more of their lives to the work of God in their cities, give more of their lives, more of their money to the work of God in the world. Let me just read you some quotes. From the opening section of some leadership materials I was reading this week. And uh, let, me just, let me just read this to you. Consider your answer to the following question. How many taps do you have in your house providing clean water? If your answer is one or more, then you are among the richest seventh of the world's population in economic terms. 1.3 billion people live on less than one U.S. dollar a day. It's a true stat. 2.6 billion people lack basic sanitation, while 1.2 billion do not have adequate housing. 
Over 20,000 children die every day of diseases that we could prevent. Those who handle church wealth should do so remembering that it is appointed for the need of the poor and to keep it from the poor is to waste it or, or waste it is to be guilty of blood. Every time we spend money, every time we spend money, we are making an ethical decision. We are deciding not to spend it on helping the poor or furthering the gospel. Now the problem here, to me, is not that these stats aren't true. The problem is not that we should be blind to these things. We need to be aware of these things. The problem that I find with this is that these stats can be used to beat the sheep of God and motivate them with guilt. Some of it is legitimate guilt, I think. And some of this stuff is true. I don't think everything there was true. But some of that stuff is true. Legitimate guilt. Some of it is illegitimate guilt. You can come away from reading something like this thinking that I am supposed to feel guilty about the fact that I have a good job, that I am an American, that I have running water, that I own a home, and I need to feel guilty that I am not doing exceedingly more for the poor, more to renew the city, more for the community, more for the schools, more for battered women, more for the pro-life cause, more for human trafficking, more for disabled children, more for AIDS orphans, more for earthquake victims, more for the elderly, more, 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 more. Now you guys all know these are all serious moral issues and I am not in any way implying that we should not care about these things. You might actually need to rethink some of your lifestyle decisions. You might need to make some changes. You might need to rethink perhaps the entire trajectory of your life. Some of you. Hit the mission field. Downsize your house. Pull back on your hours. But there are three things I want you to hear loud and clear from your pastor this morning. Don't let guilt be the motivator. Number one. Number two, you can't do everything. You can't do everything that needs to be done. It's not your job, and it's not the church's job to fix the world. And number three, don't live in perpetual guilt that you can't do it all. Now, some of you might make a significant dent in this world. Some of you might use your vapor in a way that is very notable. And everybody can see it. And I'm not trying to discourage anyone from having a profoundly culture-changing, profoundly world-impacting goal. If that's the calling on your life, then I am behind you. But here's the heart of where I'm heading right now. Some of us actually live fairly unspectacular lives, as some would count unspectacular. 
We're not making history. We're not starting a revolution. We're not saving villages. We're just trying to be faithful to clear and pressing needs that we're aware of. We're trying to worship Jesus. Try to provide for your family. You're trying to work hard, have integrity with your boss and your coworkers. You're trying to share Jesus with your neighbors. You're serving in the children's ministry. You go to care group. In fact, it was a big deal for you because you hosted care group recently. That was a big step in your life. You're giving regularly to the church. You're going to try to find some money to help this other church out that we just talked about this morning. You bought some free set bags. You're going to try to buy a Jubilee CD. But really, you're just trying hard to battle your explosive temper because you keep yelling at your kids. That's what's really on your mind. You're trying to just read your Bible regularly, and it's not going well. And you wish that your marriage were stronger, because you know it needs a lot of work. In fact, you even went through a marriage study this week. It was hard to find, or this year, it was hard to find babysitting. But you made it work. Now you're trying to get a date night in. But even that's hard. And things are better, but it needs a lot of work. You're trying to care for your parents who are getting older, who are getting sick. There's a money issue there. And you're just trying to get to the grocery store so you can get the shopping done and get the oil changed in your car and help your kids with their homework and try to make it home, actually, before they go to bed. Some nights. And you know that you're not perfect. And you know that you could do more to help others. But no matter how you cut it, your life is not going to be all that spectacular as some would count spectacular. You're not going to be William Wilberforce. Some of you might be. Some of us aren't going to be William Wilberforce. And honestly, you just want to be faithful. You just want to stand at the end of your life and hear, well done. Good and faithful service. Well done. Because you stayed on task with what I put in front of you. And then you can hear this kind of rhetoric that takes these very real very challenging issues that actually break your heart when you slow down enough to think about it. The rhetoric that takes these things and hammers you with guilt because apparently you're not serious enough about your faith to do something about it and fix it. Now, I want to make sure that that person And I want to make sure that all of us hear this. From Jesus to you. God loves a cheerful giver. Not a guilty giver. Not one who gives reluctantly or under compulsion. 2 Corinthians 5.7 God loves a cheerful giver. And I know that you know that you're not perfect. I know that you know that there are probably ways in which we are all legitimately guilty of greed and of materialism. I know you know that. I know that you know that because you're an American or living in America, that you are privileged. You have a privileged status. You know that. I hope you know that. I know that you know that living in Westchester County means that you are a privileged person. I know that you know that. But my goal 
is not to make you feel guilty about your privileges and then use what seems to me to be an illegitimate guilt to motivate you. Now, when I say illegitimate guilt, let me clarify that. There is a way of thinking about justice and social justice in particular that says justice demands that resources are distributed equally in a society or in the world. And if those resources are not equally distributed, there's a a justice issue. So that those who have more, or those who have what I'm calling privileges, are unjust in that they have not given to those who have less. So unequally distributed resources immediately makes those who are in privileged places guilty of injustice. There are some very prominent evangelicals who believe something along those lines. I don't believe that, personally. I don't believe that unequal distribution necessarily means injustice. And that's why I say feeling guilty about your privileges might be illegitimate guilt. But, here's the point. My point is not to say whether or not equal distribution is just. Here's my point. Whether you are illegitimately feeling guilty or whether you are legitimately feeling guilty doesn't matter. I don't want guilt to be the motivator for you to change the culture change the world, end poverty, and save 20,000 children tomorrow. I don't want to use guilt to motivate you to do that kind of stuff. It's a bad motivator, and those kinds of goals actually are unhelpful and unrealistic. I guarantee you that it's going to either lead to a total burnout in evangelical culture, or it's going to lead to such mission creep that churches will begin to be marked more by humanitarian causes than by the gospel and discipleship. It's already happening in many, many churches. My goal is not to use guilt to move you toward goals that are unhelpful, impractical. My goal is to help you take the next step. How's that? Whatever that is, whether it's a gigantic step, whether it's just a baby step, but the next step in your lifelong journey to honor and shine Jesus by being a joyfully generous person. That's my goal. It's to help you loosen your heart's grip on this world and be a little bit more open to being a person marked as a giver. And I don't want to motivate you to do it with guilt. So how are we going to do that? And this may be a big surprise or not, we're going to start with the gospel. Because that's where we need to start. And Jesus wants you to be generous, but as we talked about last week, He did not come to threaten you to live a more moral lifestyle. Jesus did not come to say, give your money to the poor, because if you don't, you better watch out. The Gospel doesn't say, now catch this, 
The gospel does not announce give to the poor. That's not the gospel. It is certainly an implication, a lifestyle implication that flows from those who have embraced the gospel, but that is not the gospel. The gospel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. The Gospel doesn't say, God saying to you, give me something. And the Gospel doesn't say, give them something. The Gospel says, a Savior has been given to you. And that's where we start. That's where we start. And it removes works from the foundation. So as I said last week, let's start there. Start with receiving the grace of God in the gift of Jesus Christ, His Son. And pause there. Enjoy that gift. Enjoy Jesus. Thank God for Him. Thank you, God, for Your generosity to me. Thank You for the unmerited gift of eternal life. Thank You for sacrificing Your life, Lord Jesus, so that I might benefit Thank You for bringing me into a relationship with Your Father. Thank You, thank You, thank You for Your richness to me. Start there. But just because we pause to consider that Gospel and enjoy that God doesn't mean it's going to result in self-centered and greedy People, you know that the celebration of the gift of Jesus Christ this Christmas should not produce a selfish and greedy church because that's not what the gospel produces in people who trust in Jesus, is it? Not people who really trust in Him. That's not what it produces. What the gospel produces is a people who have tasted something far better than the riches of this world. That's what it produces. The Gospel produces a people who have tasted something far better. It announces peace with God. It relieves the conscience and it opens up the holy places of God's dwelling so that we can enter in and enjoy God on our side for us. The Gospel gives us access to the greatest joys imaginable, intimate, familial relationship with the maker of galaxies. I mean, our God could change Orion's posture if he wanted to. And he's our friend. We had some friends come over this week, or recently, and we overheard one of the little girls saying, there's no fun toys at this house. (laughs) well people may say that about the Holton's house (laughs) but you're not going to say that about God's house the new heavens and the new earth will display such an exquisite demonstration of the glories of God that every morsel of beauty will stir our souls with wonder and adoration for the maker David says, in your presence, Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness 
of joy. Did you know that God is not against your happiness? He is not the great cosmic killjoy. The northern lights, that's his design. Surfing happens because he keeps sending the waves. Good food, hey, he didn't have to make it that way. Eating food could taste like chewing on tires. My dog seems to like that. I think it would be terrible. But it could be that that's how we refueled, was just with some awful process. No. God made food good. And never, some people are like, yeah, I just use food for fuel. I'm not, I don't enjoy food. I'm like, man, you're broken. <laughs> Laughter is not the result of the fall. Sex within marriage is God's design. These things and millions more demonstrate that he's not against enjoyment per se. As though any time you feel delight in this world, you're in sin. God's not on a, on a mission to create stoic, somber, bored people. That's not what Jesus does to people. God is on a mission to create worshipers. Ever thought about this word worship? I may have done this before. Just put the word worship in another context. What does this word mean? Does it mean, you know, you know, you're so good, you're so good. What if I what if I said to you, I worship MTV, man. I love it. I worship hamburgers. You'd be like, you need help. Worship. It's infatuation. It's obsession. It's passion. Other biblical words that are used to describe worship? Rejoice. Praise. Sing, David says. When's the last time you sang to somebody? Because they made you so happy. Never. I bet. <laughs> These are expressions of delight. And your ability to delight is ultimately designed so that you can delight in God Himself. God wants to delight you. He wants to make you rejoice. He wants to give you happiness by knowing Him. Greater happiness than anything else in the world can give you. He wants to cause you to worship Him. It's a joyful thing that He's calling us to. And the Gospel is the message that announces God is willing to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ so you can enjoy this joy-giving God. Start there. Start with the Gospel. Pause on the Gospel. And taste the supreme goodness of God being now on your side, in your life, your father, your friend, for eternity. Start with recalibrating your life with the gospel so that you are tasting what is supremely good in the universe. Knowing God. That's the supreme good. It's the best thing. Jesus says in John 17.3 that eternal life consists in knowing God. 
and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So start by tasting eternal life through the gospel. Because when you taste the goodness of the free gift of eternal life, when you start to truly know God, when God turns you into a worshiper of him, the joy that he gives you dilutes the power of lesser joys and their abilities to master your heart. The power of a superior affection. And it is this joy in God, this joy that we have tasted, this joy made possible by the Gospel that Paul uses as the motivator for helping us loosen our hands on our possessions in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 17. And we're talking here about joyful generosity. And the first thing I want to point out in verse 17 is that Paul says you need to put your hope in the giver, not in the gifts of the giver. Put your hope in the giver. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Timothy is supposed to give a charge to the rich. And really, folks, I mean, it's prob- that's got to be us, I would think. I, I, if, if we tried to argue with anybody else in the world that we weren't rich, I think we would lose. So, we at least have more opportunities to be ensnared by money than almost everybody else in the world. I hope, I hope we could maybe agree to that. We, we at least have the opportunities to be ensnared by money. More opportunities than most people. So, tell the rich to set their hopes on the God who has given you the riches. Set their hopes on the un- do not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And the reason they need to hear that is because they're tempted to set their hopes on the riches themselves. Now, why is that a bad idea according to verse 17? Take a look at it. Why is it a bad idea to put your hope in the riches rather than the giver? Is it because money is in itself evil? No, that's not the rationale that he gives. Is it because Christians should live ascetic lifestyles? No, that's not the rationale that Paul gives. It's not the rationale that Timothy is supposed to give to the church in Ephesus. The reason you should not put your hope in riches is because they are going to fail you. There's an uncertainty there. And that's why he says you shouldn't be arrogant about your money. Don't be haughty, Paul says. It's not going to stick around. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be it discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, when you set your eyes on your wealth, it is gone. For suddenly, check this out, it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. It just... 
Your money, your riches, they just, somehow this happens. Some of you know this if you had any major investments in the housing market recently. It's like your, your money just sprouted some wings and then took off. And it's gone. It's uncertain. Paul said in, in verse, or chapter 6, verse 7, he has just said this, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, what's the point? What's Paul trying to do? How's Paul trying to motivate? The point is not, you should feel awful about your privileges. That's not the motivation that Timothy is supposed to use. The point is, God has your good in mind. He doesn't want you to make a foolish investment and end up with shattered hopes because you put your hope into something that was uncertain, something that was going to fail you. So if you think that money is going to make you happy and secure, you need to know ahead of time it's uncertain. That's the point. God is out for your joy. He wants you to make a gain on your investment. And there's a danger in thinking that hoarding money, hoarding possessions, is going to provide the greatest gain. It won't. And in fact, it will destroy you. Because in verse 10 of this same chapter, Paul has just said this. The love of money... Just, let's just start right there. The love of money... It's a heart issue. The love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving. Love and craving money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. God loves you far too much God loves rich people. He loves you so much that He doesn't want you to be deceived into thinking that loving your money is good for you. (laughs) He loves you. So He doesn't want you to love your money. He says, make me the object of your certainty, the object of your confidence. Make me the object of your craving, the object of your love, the object of your worship. Live for the greater joy. Live for the certain joy. Set your hope on the giver, not upon His gifts. And if you want to do that, if you want to live for the greater joy, You want to live for the more certain joy. Then Paul says it is important for us to have loose hands with our possessions. To have loose hands with our money. But before he says it, look how he sets it up here at the end of verse 17. I'm going to read verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And now he just tosses this in at the end. This God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's an interesting little clause he threw on the end there. Set your hope on the God who gave you these things for you to enjoy. Recognize that God has been rich towards you. This is where your riches have come from. This is 
This is where all this stuff that you have that makes you rich, it all came because God gave it to you for enjoyment. He doesn't lay a guilt trip on them because they have privileges. In fact, what he's doing is drawing attention to God's goodness, not to fault them for having it, but to stir up worship, gratitude, awareness that God has been so good to you. Think about this. God has been so good to you. Recognize what God has given to you for your enjoyment. Do you have a job that provides for you and your family? You should realize that God has been rich to you. How good is it of Him to give that to you? Do you enjoy good food? Well, thank God for that. What a privilege. You don't deserve that. He's been rich to you, given things to you to enjoy. Do you have running water? Thank God. Six out of seven people in the world don't have clean running water. The next time you take a warm shower, don't be arrogant about it, but thank God for it. You should thank God for it, and please don't ruin the gratitude by feeling guilty about the privilege. Just realize that God has been very, very generous to you because you don't deserve any of it. This is how he sets up verse 18. Recognize that God has been rich towards you and now he calls you, open your hands up and be rich toward others. Verse 18. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. All that stuff you just thanked God for. All that stuff He gave you that you enjoy. Paul doesn't say, shame on you for having that. He says, share it. Share that. We should share what has been given to us with others, so that they can feel what it's like to be richly blessed too. God has been rich to you. You should be generous now toward somebody else. What's it feel like to be showered on with goodness? It's such a blessing. Well, let somebody else taste that blessing too. That's what's so beautiful about giving to the poor. They don't have anything. What a blessing it is then for somebody to give to them. That's what our Father has done for us. The real sign of danger here is not that I have a job, or not that I buy food, or not that I spent more than a dollar just driving here today to get to worship. The real problem is that when we love our stuff so much that we privatize all our resources so that we're not allowing others to experience some taste of the very generosity that our Father has poured into our laps. So whether it's our money, whether it's our homes, our talents, our dinner table, our time, those things that God has given to us to enjoy have also been given to us so that others might enjoy God's grace as well. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, freely you have received, freely 
give. Now, the real shocker here in all of this is even though it's going to be a blessing to those that you share with, you are the one who will experience the greater joy. That's the shocker in all of this. And it will happen in multiple ways. For one thing, Paul says in verse 19 that giving is actually investing in an, internal, in an eternal treasure. So start in verse 18 with me and watch what happens in verse 19. These rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, by doing that, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Randy Alcorn wrote this book, The Treasure Principle. I don't know if you have read this. You should. This is a great book. And Alcorn says, The Treasure Principle is this, You can't take it with you. All your possessions, all your money, you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. All the treasure that we accumulate on this earth and hold on to, it all stays behind. Somebody says to the accountant of John D. Rockefeller after his death, how much did John D. leave? Accountant said, all of it. It's very witty. He left it all. So all the treasure that we accumulate is going to stay behind, but Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, and Paul says it right here, when we give it away, we're storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Don't live your life, Alcorn says, like you're going to pull a U-Haul behind your hearse. It's foolish. Don't live that way. Live for the greater joy of eternity. Store up some treasure. Give something away. Store up some treasure. Give something away. That's how you do it. So that's the first way in which you're actually going to be the one with the greater joy is you're storing up treasure in heaven. The second way that the greater joy is yours as the giver is that it's actually more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. It's more happy to give. Acts 20.25, it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's something that happens in the heart when you loosen your grip on this world. Something happens in the heart. Say, God, I thank you for this good gift, but I want to remember that you are exceedingly better than your gifts. And you are far more trustworthy than these gifts. And I'm not going to look to this gift for my joy, and I'm not going to look to this money for my security. In fact, I'm going to give it to somebody else and store up some treasure in heaven. Something happens in the heart when we loosen our grip on the things of this world, and we let go of them. Give it away. 
It is the releasing of something that has the potential to master us. Something that has the potential of turning into an idol. In fact, perhaps it might even be for some of us this morning something that is very much an idol in our lives. And when you let go of it, the heart is freed up actually to lean a little more nearly to Jesus Christ because you've removed His rival from the picture. You can't serve two masters. Well, one way to help your heart make sure Jesus is your master is sometimes just remove the rival. Lean a little harder on Jesus. There are a lot of unhappy people in the world and probably some in this room because our one hand is wrapped around our money and our other hand is reaching out for more. And it's a functional savior for us. It's an object of worship for us. And because of that, the heart is growing very, very cold. Those who desire to be rich, Paul says, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Do you have and do I have loose hands with our money? Something robbing you of your joy? Are you holding tight to your possessions? Tight to your life here and now? Something stealing your heart's devotion to Jesus because you're unwilling to let it go? Do you need to just let go of something and maybe give it to somebody who needs it? What is your, what's your next step? That's the question I want you to Ask yourself right now, what is your next step? And some of you might feel like it's time to take a very big step, to make a serious change, to do something drastic. Some of you have thought about this for a long time, and now you feel like, you know what, I need to pull the trigger on this. Some of us need to just start to learn how to loosen our grip a little bit. Our, our hands are clenched, our muscles are tight, and our stress level is out the roof because we are so tightly gripping our money. We're very unhappy. And, and we need to just do some things or something to just help us just loosen, just loosen up a little bit. Loosen up a little bit. I'm not going to tell you, you need to go fix the world, do something crazy, just take a step. Don't go into debt to do it. Bad idea. Just With what God has given to you, just take a step. Go to battle with your flesh and be generous with something. Store up your treasure. It's probably going to hurt a little bit. My pastor Tom Harkis used to say, 
with regards to giving to the local church, he used to say, give until it hurts. Your generosity, it, it hurts a little bit. Jesus is not looking for results here. What I mean is, there was a woman who was offering a temple, an offering in a temple, in the temple. She had two mites. She drops them in. Those mites are not going to do anything in terms of results. It's not going to produce results. They're not going to build a new stained glass. They didn't have stained glass. They're not going to build a new addition to the temple because of those two mites. But you know what Jesus said, don't you? She put in more than everybody else. Because God is not concerned about the results here. He's concerned and He's looking for the heart that wants to be mastered by Jesus. And it's for our joy. What is He asking you to let go of for your joy? Let me ask the worship team to come up as I pray. Nobody in this room, nobody in this room says is saying in their heart right now, I do want to be really greedy this Christmas. Nobody was saying that when we came in here today. But a lot of us are feeling a, a, a weird kind of pressure to give, and it's not because we have the perspective of storing up treasure in heaven. It's not because we are joy motivated. And I just pray right now that for the sake of the joy of your people, you would help us to loosen our hands and take the next step. Whether that means becoming a better tipper, or whether that means giving regularly to the church, or whether that means buying a gift for someone that, that, that you normally wouldn't buy a gift for, or whether that means just doing something, Giving, giving at the grocery store, giving, just giving somewhere that they normally wouldn't give in order to go to war with their own soul and the flesh's desire to squeeze hard around money and possessions. Loosen our grip. And would you, would you help us take that first step now by setting our eyes on the Gospel so that we encounter You and we taste that there is a greater joy to be had And will you you give us power through that to let go of lesser joys? We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.